Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this Flint briefing call on COP26, looking at what happened and what's next. Uh, I'm Kieran Horwich. I'm joined today by my colleagues Sir Simon Fraser, former Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office and the Business Department, and Josh Buckland, former Energy and Climate Advisor to the Bay Secretary of State, uh, who was also on the UK negotiating team for the Paris Agreement. So after two years of preparation, the COP26 summit ended on Saturday uh, following a 24-hour extension to allow for intense negotiations that ran right into the closing plenary. On our call today, we'll talk about the final Glasgow Climate Pact that was agreed, as well as the other main outcomes from the summit. We'll cover the role of business and financial institutions in Glasgow and the wider implications for the geopolitical landscape. And then we'll look in particular at the forward agenda on climate policy and how the domestic and international landscape will move ahead from here. The call will last no longer than 30 minutes. And as usual, we've muted the lines and won't take any questions on the call. But do let us know afterwards if there's anything that you'd like to discuss. So, Josh, um, let's kick us off. And and will you give us an overview of the summit and and what, in your view, were the positives and negatives um, and how Number 10 and the PM will evaluate COP26 now that it's over? Thanks, Kieran. Um, I think generally there's a sense of relief um, that at points running into the summit um, and also during the negotiations themselves, there was a real genuine concern that the geopolitical backdrop and the continued challenges around COVID could lead to a weak deal that undermined UK leadership and climate change. Now, those who follow COPs know that there was always going to be a degree, uh, a, a deal of sorts um, finalised. But I think the PM can be relatively content with the outcome. Um, he put it as more than six out of 10, which means quite a few things. But I, I think I'd agree and put it around about seven out of 10. Looking first at kind of the positives, I'd pull out three things in particular. Firstly, I think it's unarguable that Glasgow did shift the dial on global emissions. By the end of the summit, the swathe of country commitments should put global warming on a trajectory for around 1.8 degrees. That's clearly not 1.5 degrees, but is a material move to bend the global emissions curve downwards. Clearly, that assumes that all targets the countries have made are delivered, which is a very big assumption, but it shows that global ambition is only going in one direction. I think secondly, you mentioned the Glasgow deal itself um, and the pact that was agreed. I think it's safe to say that it's a success. Um, It puts a clearer sense that the overall global temperature should be 1.5 degrees, not simply 2 degrees. Um, There is clearly a sense that there was movement on fossil fuels. So, for example, for the first time, there was a commitment on phasing down coal use and a new ratchet mechanism to bring countries back to the table in 2022. There was also critically progress on climate finance, which was a really big focus for the UK government over the last two years. I think in totality, the UK can be proud that the pact materially strengthens the framework that was agreed in Paris in 2015. I think thirdly, and this is actually really critical, the Paris rulebook was finalised. The technical rules that govern the agreement, um, and despite recent failures, the UK can be proud of the fact that it has finally uh, finished the rules that set out the Paris Agreement framework. Critically, there was a deal on Article 6, which whilst led to kind of mixed reviews, it was a reasonable compromise and lays the groundwork for important action moving forward. So I think really the value of that is it now switches the focus to implementation of the agreement rather than continual negotiations. But I think by no means it was a barnstorming success. I think there was clearly evidence, which I'm sure Simon will come back to in more detail, that the geopolitical divide on climate change still exists. There was a last minute intervention from China and India to water down the commitment on coal. And that's just further evidence that economic interests will continue to trump environmental concerns in some regions. Clearly as well, and maybe perhaps more worryingly from a climate change perspective, there was a clear lack of near term action. 
Despite 90% of emissions now being covered by a net zero target, few countries committed to materially increase their formal 2030 targets under the Paris Agreement. Yes, there was a commitment to update them next year, but with a pressure valve of COP26 coming off, there is no guarantee that they will. So there is a small sense that Glasgow was a missed opportunity. But I think overall, it was a measured success, and it does indeed lay the groundwork for greater ambition down the line. Great. Thanks, Josh. So you've you've talked there um, very much about countries and and governments' roles. On the business side, we had um, Mark Carney announcing the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero um, and signed up £130 in net zero uh, transition. We also had the the Race to Zero, which now includes 60 of the FTSE 100 companies. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the role of the private sector and business in Glasgow? Of course. I think ever since um, the UK was confirmed as host of COP26, the team have been desperate to position the private sector as critical to tackling climate change. They helped create the UN Race to Zero campaign, and they put a really significant emphasis on the role of not just corporate business, but also the investment community. And I think they can say that it was a success. Um, While the summit itself was inevitably focused on politics and national delegations, there was a clear and strong voice of business in Glasgow. And having been to COPs before, it felt more involved and more clear than it has done previously. That was both within the formal event, but also in the kind of vibrant fringe um, in and around the venue. Looking at the corporate side, there was a clear sense that businesses obviously have a role in setting their own climate targets that are net z- that aligned to the science. But interestingly, at Glasgow, you s- saw for the first time a shift towards an acknowledgement that they also need to take clear near-term action. Um, so a lot of the announcements made were about tangible things that were businesses could do, investment in renewables, switching to electric vehicle production lines. There was a shift away from simply announcing targets to actually announcing corporate action. Um I think the real thing I would take away from Glasgow, actually, was not necessarily the corporate involvement, though. It was the financial services community and the investment side, which really stole the limelight. There were obviously a series of headline announcements you've mentioned from from Mark Carney and others. But interestingly, there was a whole swathe of announcements made by individual companies about what they're doing to green their investment book and also what they're going to do to try and mobilise low-carbon infrastructure investment. It's clear that the financial industry in particular have heard the noise around climate change and are acting. I think clearly climate policy will continue to be led by countries um, at a macro level. But Glasgow is evidence that businesses are now pushing alongside civil society for greater ambition, not less. Great. Thanks, Josh. So, Simon, coming to you um, and some of the geopolitics, uh, Josh talked at the top um, about the language on fossil fuels uh, being watered down by India and China at the last minute. What are some of the big picture lessons that that COP26 has told us about the the international politics of climate change and in particular the role of China, India, the US and, and how did the EU perform? Thank you, Kieran. I I agree with Josh that essentially the UK has pulled off a good summit. And in diplomatic terms, you know, that's not easy to do. So diplomatically, it was it was well handled. Um, But I think the underlying geopolitics that we saw uh, at Glasgow was really a bit disappointing in some respects. So um, the fact that President Xi and Putin and Bolsonaro and Erdogan were not there uh, is significant. Um, it gives the sense that, you know, top level attendance is somehow optional at these events. And that is something which I think is is regrettable. And it sort of suggests the entrenchment of geopolitical divisions, which we've been seeing develop in recent years. Um, but I don't think we should overstate the fact that uh, the Chinese president wasn't there. He hasn't left China for two years. And he has, of course, since had this three hour call with President Biden. So let's not exaggerate this. But I think it is a, ma- it is a matter of some concern. 
Um, I do myself think that the United States and China, who, as we know, are engaged in this sort of geopolitical standoff at the moment, really missed the opportunity to show serious material leadership early on in the COP process. So they did issue a joint statement halfway through, two-thirds of the way through. It came a bit late, and in my view, it was a bit thin on substance. Better than nothing, but not what I had really been hoping for in terms of a positive joint signal uh, with really serious impact. On the coal issue, well, there was progress made on coal, of course, because it was introduced formally into the text. But this last-minute strong-arm negotiating tactic by India and China uh, was disappointing. Obviously, Alok Sharma found it difficult. Um, it did deflect a bit of the attention at the end from Saudi Arabia, which had been the focus of some uh, concern about the position on fossil fuels. I think one of the things we have to remember is that it's China and India, actually, who are going to have to deliver uh, hugely uh, on uh, getting to 1.5 degrees because they are major emitters of greenhouse gases now. So that is important. As for the EU, I think it was a relatively low-profile performance from the EU. Uh, the German position on uh, petrol and diesel uh, vehicles and the phasing out of those is obviously quite conservative. There was little sense of visible EU leadership uh, in Glasgow. Um, that may be for a number of reasons. Possibly Brexit dynamics with the UK hosts up to a point influence that. But I think there's also a lot of political uncertainty, of course, in Germany and, and elsewhere in the EU. Um, final point for me, I mean, more widely, I think what Glasgow underlines again is it's increasingly difficult these days to deliver results in huge multilateral events of this sort, where you have so many countries around the table with so many diverse interests. Uh, so it's to some extent further evidence of the ebbing of the tide of multilateralism. But again, let's not um, uh, dismiss the fact that the UK did deliver what Josh says was a pretty credible 7 out of 10 performance. Um, we'll come back perhaps later to the divide between the developing and the developed world, which still lies uh, at the heart of some of the big issues that we need to address going forward and remains a gap still to be bridged. Thank you, Simon. So, Josh, taking that on and, and looking forward, um, it's now being confirmed that COP27 will take place in, in Egypt next year, but the UK continues to hold the COP presidency until that point. So will you talk us through what happens between now and then and, and how does the international caravan move on over the next 12 months? I, well, I, I hope my old kind of government colleagues are taking a bit of a breather after what's been a pretty pretty busy year. Um, but I think it is it's it is amazing how quickly attention does shift, um, and you're already seeing uh, governments and and companies starting to talk about what needs to happen by by the next COP. As I mentioned earlier, COP26 was was a measured success, but it does lay the framework for future action. And 2022 is a really critical year in terms of the formalities. The UK holds the COP presidency for the following year, up to the beginning of the next COP. Uh, Alok Sharma. Was expect to stay in post as COP president um, to aim to keep up momentum and drive the commitments that were made at the summit and beyond. His particular focus is likely to be on pushing countries to increase their 2030 nationally determined contribution targets under the Paris Agreement. That is absolutely critical to cutting emissions by 50% by 2030, which is broadly needed to keep the world on track to limit global warming. And, and clearly, he'll also push very hard on climate finance. Again, there were some successes at COP, but broadly, the agreement was to come back to the table with more money and a clearer framework for provision of climate finance out to 2025 and beyond by the time of the next COP. 
The other thing the UK team will be doing, we'll be looking to partner closely with the Egyptian government. It's clear that there always has to be alignment between the current presidency and the president-designate. Um, and I would imagine there will be a lot of coordination between the two, which obviously creates opportunities to, to support that. Um, on the Paris Agreement itself, as I mentioned earlier, the technical agreement, technical negotiations are now very much resolved. The focus is now on holding countries to account on the frameworks that were made and pushing on implementation. One area within that which will be interesting to watch this year will be international carbon markets. As I mentioned, the Article 6 framework is now finalised, which dictates the rules countries must abide by in terms of trading carbon credits. That clearly creates a huge market opportunity, but also will be a key focus for the civil society movement to understand the level of credibility and robustness that builds up around both mandatory and voluntary markets. And I think finally, then looking forward, obviously, to COP26, and the agenda for that will develop over the course of 2022, I expect there to be a strong focus on climate finance. There is a real sense that can the public and private sector finally come forward and deliver sufficient finance to mobilise both mitigation, but also adaptation critically. We've started the ball rolling at Glasgow, but there is an awful lot more to do to bridge the divide, as, as Simon mentioned, around developed and developing countries. I also expect there to be a significant focus on some of the agendas that were kicked off at COP26. So a particular focus, no doubt, would be on green finance and the push for the fabled kind of international alignment on climate disclosures. The UK team will not want to lose momentum on those issues and will want to grab an opportunity to further them at the Egypt COP next year. Thanks, Josh. And um, I, I know it was just a slip of a tongue there, but you you talked about COP26 next year rather than COP27, obviously, uh, still stuck in everyone's heads. Um, so, Simon, looking looking at the other side of that, Josh has talked us through the kind of process over the next year and, and the focus in terms of the, the COP team um, in the UK. How does this link to the UK's kind of wider foreign policy agenda and, and, and global Britain? Has, has COP26 been good for the UK in that, that perspective? And, and what happens next year? Well, I mean, I think it has uh, broadly been good. I mean, we convened this meeting, as I say, diplomatically. It was well done. It was a huge ask. Uh, it could have been, could have gone a lot worse than it did. And broadly speaking, it went pretty well. And if you look, if you look back at 2021, I mean, it's been a big year for the UK on the international scene because we had the presidency of the G7 followed by the presidency of COP. And sort of in the post-Brexit phase and the launching of the Global Britain uh, profile, if you like, uh, I think it's been, there's been a lot of opportunity. Um, so, you know, they did it well. COVID made it difficult in terms of convening. Um, they managed expectations around it, and I think they managed to deliver uh, a professional outcome. I think you have to, uh, as I've said, uh, bear in mind that the absence of some of the leaders of the uh, some of the big countries somehow weakened the sense of convening power. I don't think that's Britain's fault, um, but it's uh, it, it was it was one of the issues that definitely emerged. Um, the UK's record itself on climate change, I think, is is credible and strong. You know, we have a number of policies in place which make us uh, leaders in a number of areas. So the UK's credibility there was good. I suppose one question I would ask is, to what extent uh, did was the UK really able to exert uh, muscle in in convening here after Brexit? Normally, we would have leveraged the EU in the previous in, in pre previous years, perhaps a bit more than we were able to this time. So the UK voice was strong. Um, whether it might have been stronger is, is another matter. But I think the relationships were good and the diplomacy and the preparation uh, was good as, as well. 
Now, looking forward, 2022 has fewer clear op- clearer opportunities for the UK to take a high profile on big international issues. Um, there's one important meeting coming up at the end of this year, which is not a specific UK uh, leadership thing, but I just want to refer to it because it hasn't had much profile, which is the WTO ministerial meeting happening at the end of November and into December at the end of this year. But then, as I say, looking forward for the UK, uh, it's going to be more challenging, I think, to sort of profile the country internationally. Uh, there are some things that we can definitely do uh, in the follow-up to COP, and Josh has alluded to some of them. Um, to promote policies which will help take forward the climate change agenda. And one of them, going back to the point I alluded to earlier, is this question of how we're going to ensure that the transition to, to towards net zero or to reducing emissions around the world uh, is a just one. And the big problem of the fact that the majority of that burden is going to fall on developing countries, and in particular on some of the poorest countries in the world, Now, the UK, of course, has recently reduced its aid budget, but is still a significant player in this. And I think focusing on that and making sure that the finance flows and the both government and private sector support to enabling a just transition internationally is definitely one area uh, on the climate agenda where the UK should be looking to uh, continue to play a leadership role, in my view. Thanks, Simon. And Josh, let's finally, before we start to wrap up and, and talk about the, the business implications, um, let's talk about the domestic policy landscape. Simon mentioned that the UK has been a leader um, in a number of areas, and, and that's an important part of its position as COP president. Will you, will you talk to us about what's going to happen over the next year from a domestic policy perspective and, and how net zero and climate are going to feature uh, in the number of initiatives and activities of the government over the next year? Of course, I I think now COP26 is over, the big focus for the government at domestic level is on delivery, delivery, delivery. Government will struggle, as Simon mentioned, to maintain international momentum if it doesn't keep up and show progress at home. In addition, I think government is acknowledged and is aware that the time for target setting and ambition is now over. We are now in an implementation phase, both internationally as well as domestically, so the focus will be on delivery. Particularly within that, there will be a focus on low-carbon infrastructure development. Um, That is one of the few tangible examples of how it can bring home the levelling up agenda and deliver economic opportunity and new jobs. And clearly, that's where the net zero agenda has wider political benefit. Um, And I think they'll therefore be desperate to see progress on major projects before the next election, Um, particularly in areas where there has been some success already. Offshore wind is a great example of that. Um, But also in other areas where progress has stalled over the last couple of years, but is now accelerating carbon capture, utilisation of storage, low carbon hydrogen, nuclear, you start to see a significant debate around. There will be a particular focus within government on how those projects can deliver value in particular areas of the country, including obviously the fabled Red Wall. Um, in terms of the other kind of areas, they will absolutely be keen to show that the initiatives kicked off both in the run up to COP and afterwards were more than just, just hot air. I mentioned in passing briefly earlier, green finance. This is an area where the Treasury and the UK government will generally feel that they have a global leadership position. So we're expecting a very busy regulatory agenda on the, in that space over the course of the coming year. And there is a series of announcements, not just on risk disclosure, but also transition plans over the course of COP, which will now be around implementation. And there'll clearly be big questions around the implications of those, both the businesses and also obviously internationally. I think the other thing I would just mention is obviously all of this has to be done in the context of a 
more difficult political environment. You could ignore the kind of current challenges around sleaze. Really, the big focus at the moment is around rapidly and sustained inflation, which is obviously causing cost of living pressures. That firstly leaves less fiscal space to fund the net zero transition as debt interest costs rise. But also, more importantly, alongside growing pressure from Tory backbenches, a risk that the government's willingness to take the difficult decisions to drive forward the net zero agenda at a domestic level is undermined. And clearly that will impact progress. And that's the kind of circle that the government has to be stepping through very carefully. So I think it's going to clearly be a very busy and kind of uh, energetic year on the domestic level. But it's clear that it's going to also be a difficult one. Thanks, Josh. Um, and now it wouldn't be a Flint briefing call if we didn't think about the uh, the business implications going forward. So, uh, Josh, will you, will you kick us off with with some of your thoughts, and, and then Simon, I'll come to you. Yeah. So I think the I think the agenda before COP was clear. Global momentum on climate change, public concern around it is accelerating, and I I don't think COP really changes that. But I think critically, it doesn't now that we're beyond COP let the pressure off. It's clear that there is going to be a sustained increase in political ambition and there is clearly going to be a greater level of policy and regulatory intervention moving forward. I think similarly, as I mentioned on the government side, clearly the focus now is not just on ambition, it's on delivery. So one of the key themes that did continue through COP was accusations around greenwashing, a sense that businesses were not, they were all talk and they weren't necessarily serious about delivering the promises that they've made. So I think similarly to what we kind of want to see and expect to see from government this year, the real question for businesses and for investors will be how they can show they're moving from ambition to action. Within that, I'd pull out two things in particular. I think firstly, there is a strong sense, and I think government is aware of this, that the money from the private sector is there to drive progress. Um, But clearly, the regulatory and financial frameworks that are required to unlock that investment in new technologies, as well as existing infrastructure, is currently not kind of in place. So I think really the critical thing for uh, for businesses will be to work with government over the coming years to craft those frameworks that accelerate investment and allow a kind of near-term focus on delivery to actually be backed up by progress on individual projects. I think the other thing I would say, um, and this is kind of a is, is a topic again that came up at COP, is I do think businesses have a role to play in helping government define what a reasonable transition pathway looks like. Not all companies can be green immediately. They will need to transition over time. So I think clearly there is a role for both governments and investors critically to work with government, including the Treasury and the regulators, to help shape what a reasonable transition framework looks like to ensure the UK can make rapid progress, but also unlock the economic benefits that should flow from that. And Simon, last but not least, what's your take? Well, I mean, just let's just step back, I mean, in terms of what this means for the government and for business. Uh, I mean, the, what we have to bear in mind is that we are facing huge changes to the economy across the board. And indeed, you know, with wide societal implications in taking forward the delivery of net zero. Uh, you know, climate change is not a sort of separate policy issue. It's going to be increasingly at the heart of all policy and business needs to understand and lock onto that agenda. Uh, and that is a really, really big, big issue. Uh, second point for me, um, um, we're heading towards an election, actually, as of now, really, over the next couple of years. So there's a big question about how the government is going to be able to sustain commitment on this and delivery in the political context of an election. They're going to need voters to support whatever they're doing on net zero. Uh, Josh has alluded to the cost of living crisis which and inflation, uh, which we, you know, we are now facing. That is going to magnify concerns about the cost of the net zero transition. And in this context, 
one of the things that business needs to think about, as well as government, is this question of the perceived fairness of policy and the actions that are taken uh, on this agenda. So if business can come up, can help the government come up with frameworks to fund net zero that are perceived to be socially fair, I think that will be very important. Creating innovative policies and regulatory solutions that help to reduce the burden on the people who are less well-placed to meet that burden. There's going to be a big social aspect to this, uh, and we all really have an interest in avoiding political and social division as we take this forward. We need a cohesive and united society to deliver on these big challenges. So I do think business has a chance for leadership, and Josh alluded rightly to the role that the private sector played in Glasgow and stepped up to in an encouraging way. And through innovation and investment and the mobilisation of capital, uh, there's a lot that could be done, and government needs help on this. So we need partnership between the public and private sectors in every way to help catalyse the green transition, to look at the new technologies that we've been talking about, to mobilise the investment, uh, to decarbonise transport, and in so many areas of the economy. Uh, so that is the challenge for business. That is the opportunity for business. Um, in a sense, as I've been saying over the last couple of weeks, there's a moral obligation for us all here, but that is also combined and married with the self-interest of all of us as, you know, as political actors, as uh, businesses, and as consumers uh, to make sure that we carry on making the changes that are needed. Thank you very much, Simon um, and Josh, for both of your input. Um, and thank you to everyone who's joined us on the call today. We th hope that you have found this um, an interesting discussion, a useful discussion. Um, and as ever, if there are any questions on any of the points that we've raised, please do get in contact. Um, we'll be sharing a note on this, um, I think, in the next few days to, to follow up on some of this discussion. Um, and have a great day. Thanks very much.